I know that your powers of retention are as wet as a warthog's backside. But thick as you are, pay attention. My words are a matter of pride. It's clear from your vacant expressions, the lights are not all on upstairs. But we're talking kings and successions, and even you can't be caught unawares. And so sang the villain, what I believe to be one of the greatest movies of all time, Lion King. And somewhere Pastor John is shivering at such a statement on a North Carolina beach, but alas, the damage is done. While John is shuddering, the illustration is pertinent. The rallying cry of Scar to the hyenas operates in a similar, albeit less insulting way, to what our God says to us here in Matthews 24 and 25. We're getting a reminder from our king to keep watch. And like the hyena henchmen, our powers of retention are lousy. We sinful humans are really quite thick. Left to our own devices, we easily miss, to use Scar's phrase, the chance of a lifetime. A chance to occupy something infinitely better than Pride Rock. It's a shot to participate in the consummated and eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. But we must be prepared. And thankfully, our gracious king lays out for us what that looks like in these next two chapters. It's going to be the main thread of these next two Sundays together in Matthew 24 and particularly 25. Preparing for Jesus. Today we're going to be focusing on the parable of the ten virgins in verses 1 to 13. And next week the concluding passage to this whole section of scripture that begins with the sheep and the goats in verses 31 to 46. And in between those two parables, of course, is the parable of the talents, the parable of the bags of gold, if you prefer. John preached that text to us as recently as March. He's preached it a number of times over the years. So I'm going to be passing over it, but of course touching on it as part of the overall flow of this passage. It's all one cohesive lesson. It starts back in verse 1 of chapter 24. And so before we jump into our parable today, we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time going through the chapter that leads up to it. The parable of the ten virgins actually appears right in the center of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's known that because Jesus taught this lesson, of course, to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is located just outside the Jerusalem gates, and he did this in the week leading up to his death. This passage includes some of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. It's been the subject of endless debate, particularly surrounding eschatology, the study of the end times. And we're going to avoid most of that. Inevitably, we have to touch on some of it. But we're going to be sticking to the bigger picture. How does Jesus answer his disciples' question in verse 3 of chapter 24? That is what guides the whole section of this text. We must at least get comfortable with how Jesus begins that answer in chapter 24 in order to understand the purpose of the parables in chapter 25. So let's begin by doing a quick buzz over this chapter 24. You can follow along with me in your bulletin as well if you have those. I've included a brief overview of this chapter. It's a little bit complex. But let me start at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So that comment would have likely stunned the disciples into silence. The Gospels of Mark and Luke go further in telling us they were just remarking at the beauty of the temple buildings, the splendor of the gifts that they housed, and then Jesus just drops this bomb on them. You can almost hear the wheels turning 
in their brains between verse 2 and verse 3. Peter and the others, they're trying to compute the dwelling place of God's special revelatory presence on earth is going to be destroyed again. Jesus probably said this while they're walking along a busy street outside the temple gates. So it's not until they get some privacy and peace outside the city on the Mount of Olives that the disciples have finally formulated a question. And that's verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Everything Jesus says in the rest of chapters 24 and 25 is his answer to that question. At first glance, it appears to be a two-parter. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of the end of the age? But we're looking at this, of course, with the benefit of history. We know when the temple was destroyed and that it didn't bring about uh, the end of history. At this time, the disciples would have likely actually linked those two events in their minds. They could only see such a tragedy as temple destruction as part of the events that would usher in the end of the world. Think of it like this. Have you ever realized you just asked a poorly constructed, slightly naive question halfway through someone's answer? That's probably what the disciples realized by about verse 33 of chapter 24. Jesus' answer corrects this key assumption of the disciples. Jesus clearly separates the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, an event that occurred less than 40 years after this conversation, from the climactic end of salvation history. Jesus warns, in fact, that the period leading up to that final end will be characterized by events similar to the gruesome destruction of Jerusalem. But there will be a long delay before his return. Now, again, if we, if we had a week, we could look at the rest of chapter 24 in detail. But for now, to borrow a John Bellism again, let's fly over the rest of this at 30,000 feet. In verses 4 to 28, is the first section, Jesus begins answering his disciples' question by describing things that occur before the end of salvation history. As he says in verse 8, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Anyone who's been pregnant or close to someone who has been pregnant will know sometimes birth pains come significantly before the actual end of a pregnancy. In fact, in a way, the whole period a person is pregnant is often characterized by pain. That's the idea here. And one particularly sharp birth pain will be the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And that's described by Jesus in verses 15 to 21. So here we have... Part one of Jesus' answer to the disciples' question. The destruction of the temple will occur within this birth pains period. But then there's a big transition in verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, that is, immediately after this period of long delay characterized by tribulation and persecution, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's here that Jesus begins to answer the second part of his disciples' poorly formulated question. He alludes to Daniel 9 and answers, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And here's Jesus' answer to summarize it. It will follow a period of long delay that will include many terrible events, including the destruction of Jerusalem. It will include famines and earthquakes, wars and rumors of wars. It will include a slew of false teachers and periods of heavy persecution of God's people. Verse 11, it will include the gospel being preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That is all happening before the return 
of Christ. Look at verse 34 now. This one's tricky. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Again, a tricky sentence at face value. Much ink has been spilled over this one. Clearly, Jesus did not mean he planned to return before the disciples died. So what did he mean? The interpretation hinges on the phrase, all these things. To what is Jesus referring? The best interpretation seems to be that he is again speaking of the events in verses 4 through 28, not of his return in 29 to 31. The generation to which Jesus is speaking will experience all the features of the tumultuous period between his ascension and his return. And so will every generation living in the last days after them. Do you ever get overwhelmed by the news of the day? I'm a little desensitized to it because I'm immersed in it in my day-to-day work. But I've had many a person, many of you, even come to me and say, I don't read, listen, watch the news. It's too depressing. It makes me nervous. It makes me angry. And it's true. The effects of a fallen world are hard to take in at times. And the media does have its way of shining a light on evil in an annoying way sometimes. But I think often this attitude is actually rooted in our own fear. We don't want to be reminded of suffering. We don't want to be reminded of the many different ways we might face our end. We want to plug our ears and live in blissful ignorance. And friends, I'm I'm not saying, please don't take this home, go home and become a cable news junkie. In fact, definitely not. That won't be good for your soul. But Christian, we have the tools to handle the news of the day. We should be able to face death, to face tragedy, square on. Not without emotion. Grief is good. The death of any image bearer is rightful cause for mourning. But brothers and sisters, these events, they shouldn't surprise us. They shouldn't rock us to our very core. They should solidify our faith. This past week, it was an earthquake in Haiti. It was an insurrection in Afghanistan. Next week, it'll be something else, somewhere else. But look here, in, verse, in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus told us this would happen. He told us these events, these types of traumatic events, earthquakes, war, brutal suffering, gross injustice, perversion of the truth, all of this would be relentless in the last days. The Taliban takeover should be preaching us this sermon. The Haiti earthquake should be preaching us this sermon. The next time there's a tragedy in Toronto, there will be one. Remember the word of the Lord. All these are the beginning of birth pains. They are like the lesson of the fig tree in verses 32 and 33. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, all these things in verses 4 to 28, you know that it is near, right at the door. So New City, as horrific, as terrifying as those images were out of Kabul and Port-au-Prince this past week and other parts of Haiti, as much as we should pray for our suffering brothers and sisters and provide support where we can, these tragedies should all serve as another reminder that Jesus is right at the door. A time when everything will be made right is imminent. In light of eternity, we are mere seconds away from his return. Spring is here, New City. Summer is certain to come. So that's the first part of Jesus' answer to his disciples. It's admittedly a little vague on details. You can almost imagine the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter this time, interjecting, saying, okay, but when exactly are you bringing an end to these days, Jesus? Can you put a date on this for us? Verse 36. 
But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Here is another critical verse for us to file away. If someone ever claims to know any kind of date associated with the return of Christ, remember this verse. That kind of talk should set off cult or at very least false teacher alarm bells in our conscience at full blast. In the verses that follow that statement, Jesus adds that the end will be like in the days of Noah, when people were going about their regular routines until it started to rain. In fact, this end will be so unexpected, it'll be like two people doing the same job and they are separated. Now, just as an aside, and this is going to put brackets over this next comment I'm going to make. Many have used the verses 40 and 41, the thing about the mill worker and the farmer, to support the view of some kind of secret rapture of believers before Jesus comes. I and most commentators don't think there's much support for that interpretation. Given the near context of the Noah analogy, which says the wicked were taken all away by the floodwaters, so the one mill worker and the one farmer who are taken away, they are taken away to judgment, not to some millennial kingdom. It's actually likely the one that is left that presumably enjoys the new earth with Christ. End bracket. All right, so that's the hefty setup for our parable today. And trust me, we will get to that parable at some point. This is helpful stuff, though. We have to have this behind us before we get to it. Starting in verse 37, Jesus begins to formulate his series of parables. He's got five of them. Five lessons that reveal different aspects of faithful waiting. The parable we're going to look at is number three. And next week, we're looking at number five. But first, a quick word on these first two. The parable of the thief and the parable of the faithful and wicked servants. The first in verses 36 to 41, it emphasizes the unexpectedness of Jesus' return. It will be like a break and enter. Therefore, we should wait as those who do not wish to be surprised by our master's return. The application here is straight ahead. Friend, are you intentionally waiting to place your trust in Christ? Are you hesitating because it could mean social loss or family shame or career setback? Are you waiting for a convenient time to give up that sin that you enjoy unrepentantly? Don't be a fool. Rather, understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. If you knew when the Lord was coming, you would turn to him to salvation. But since you do not, do it now before it is too late. His offer of full forgiveness in the death of his son and the promise of a resurrection like that of his son, it's still extended. But there won't be time to react if, in fact, you think you can wait until the Lord is descending. The second parable has a slightly different twist. This time, two servants are in view. One who takes care of his master's household well while he is away. Another who takes advantage of that long absence by exploiting the master's other servants and resources. Verse 50 is a sobering reminder. The master of the wicked servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he is not aware of. My daughter Heidi uh, is in the midst of the terrible twos. And that means she's trying out great varieties of sin, namely defiance of Jesse and I's authority. One of the things she's done recently is when she has discovered some new and questionable activity and we've told her to stop, she often will initially, begrudgingly, but after a few moments of playing, and this is something she's done this past week, she might say, go away. Why, Heidi? Go away. So we comply, 
knowing full well what will soon occur. The second Jesse or I leave the room, she, of course, returns to the previously forbidden task, as though we will never return. Inevitably, we do, usually a few seconds later, and punishment is upgraded. Now, friends, this is the viewpoint of the wicked servant. It is the perspective of a toddler, pretending the master doesn't exist while they are away. That is not the Christian life. Romans 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. We looked at that last week. We live as those who must give an account. This parable is particularly applicable to church leaders, to those God has placed in a position of authority over other servants in his new covenant household. But there is a sobering reminder to any who might abuse it in verse 51. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pastors, of course, are not the only ones in view here. This parable is applicable to every Christian. Think of who and what God has entrusted to your care. Are you stewarding it as though the Lord is watching? Because he is. With that, we come to our main text today. We're halfway through the sermon, don't worry. The parable of the ten virgins, as it is known. As we've now seen, this is the third parable that Jesus employs to teach us how to wait for his return in these tumultuous days. Let's work through it. Verse 1. At that time, we have to pause there, at what time? The most obvious meaning is at the coming of the Son of Man, at the end of the age. It has been the topic of discussion since verse 36. So at that time, the time of Christ's second coming, the kingdom of heaven, and in this context, life under God's universal rule, will be like the following parable. It will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. We have to do a full stop here. We can't picture the proper setting for this parable quite as easily as the first audience of this from Jesus. This is a first century Jewish wedding. We don't really have a category for this. Let me, let me try to help us out. Jesse and I will be celebrating five years of marriage on Friday. What I can tell you about our wedding day is this. I was an afterthought. I was bumming around with my groomsmen most of the morning, chatting with random guests as they arrived, twiddling my thumbs until about five minutes before the ceremony. Not so for Jessie. From the moment she woke up, she was the center of attention. She was the bride with a capital B. She had an entourage of ladies following her around all morning, pretty much all day. When she pulled up at our wedding venue, that's when things got real. Get to your seats. Start the music. Get ready. No one gave a rip that I'd been there for an hour. The rest of the day revolved around her. Western weddings are bride-centric. Not so in first century Judea. In fact, they were the exact opposite. The bridegroom, the man getting married, was the star of the show. And these weddings were long, with multiple stages. Normally, it would begin with the groom taking some of his close friends and family over to the bride's home for a small party with a few rituals. And then there would be a procession through the streets to the groom's house where the real party would begin. The problem is the timing of all this is really quite indefinite in this era. First century Jews, they did not watch the clock like we do today. Our Dominican contingent here might be able to understand this. Island time, am I right? Start times are flexible. So what this means then, essentially, is that if you wanted to get to that good party, the party at the groom's house, you had to wait for the party to be done at the bride's house, and you didn't know exactly when that was going to happen. And while the start times weren't clear, it still wasn't kosher for you to arrive late 
for that party. So that's the scene. These ten women, they're waiting to join the procession to the groom's house so they can take part in that epic party. The fact they're referred to as virgins, by the way, can sometimes trip us up in the 21st century. Uh, The meaning of this Greek word is essentially a single woman of marriageable age. What I'm trying to say is the sexual history of these women, that's not something notable. The virginity of these women would have been assumed in this culture. It has no bearing on the parable. Verse 2, five of them, that is five of the young women, were foolish and five were wise. Just a bare fact at this point, we don't know why. Now Jesus explains the difference in verse 3. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Did you catch the sole difference? There's only one between the five wise and the five unwise virgins. It is in their preparation for the lengthy wait. All of them fell asleep. I think it's easy to miss that because there are other parables that talk about staying awake versus not falling asleep. We see the disciples in the garden. That kind of comes to mind here. But in this case, all of them fall asleep. The only difference is in the preparation. The five wise virgins brought an extra flask of oil to keep their torches going. And the five unwise ones brought only enough for a short wait. So this parable then, it hinges on the delay. Verse 4 is the key verse. The bridegroom, that is a common Old Testament image for the Messiah, and it clearly represents Jesus in this parable, is delayed way longer than expected. It seems the first party at the bride's house has gotten a little out of hand, and thus the key point is like the bridegroom, Jesus will be delayed a long time in coming. Verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Midnight's a common image for an eschatological climax in the Bible. So this is the day of the Lord. It's arrived. Verse 7. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now it's here that a lot of commentators start making conclusions that are a bit unhelpful. They distract from the main point. Some say the oil represents faith, others say grace or the Holy Spirit, but in actuality, no such conclusion is necessary. The point is this, preparedness is not transferable. The preparation of the wise virgins is what saves them. The non-preparation of the unwise virgins leaves them with no recourse. Those who are saved have no way of helping the unregenerate on the last day. Verse 10. While they, that's the unwise maidens, were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. It's a terrifying conclusion. It's actually where the parable deviates as well from a typical first century Jewish wedding. At a real wedding, it's likely late guests would have been allowed in, maybe some public shaming, but they would have been allowed in. Not so on the day of the Lord. There is no mercy for those not ready for Jesus on the last day. Does that sound harsh? Don Carson is helpful here. He writes this, Because this parable concerns the consummation, The refusal to recognize or admit the foolish virgins must not be construed as callous rejection of their lifelong desire to enter the kingdom. Far from it. 
It is the rejection of those who, despite appearances, never made preparation for the coming of the kingdom at all. Their rejection is just. Jesus then concludes this parable by restating the main theme of the group of parables. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So what do we take from this? This third parable serves as a balance, in some ways, to the preceding two in this section. Those first two, they focus on the suddenness of Christ's return. And there's an element of that again here in the third one. But the main point of parable three is that Christians must prepare for a long delay before that sudden return. I think in Western Christianity, we're reminded of that first lesson quite a bit. We hear a lot, the end is near. It's really been the cry of American evangelicalism for a couple of centuries. All of the emphasis is placed on the imminency of Christ's return. There are some views of the end times that has contributed to that mindset. I'm not going to get into that today. But without a doubt, the dramatic, left-behind-like end of history is something many of us are familiar with. We've probably heard it often if we've grown up in an American or a Canadian church. It's not a completely unbiblical notion, as we've seen from the parable of the thief in the night. But how does the third parable then balance it out? How does this apply to our eschatology? How do we live amid the tension of a sudden end but a long delay? I'm going to highlight three points of application this morning. Number one, praise God for the mercy of the delay. Growing up, I rode a bus to school. It took about 45 minutes to get there as we went back and forth along the country concessions north of London. Uh, It would stop at the end of my laneway. My brother would be out there with me. The problem was the laneway to our farmhouse was about 150 meters long. It was a cold walk some mornings and a lot longer than you city slickers walked for anything, I'll say. But I rarely walked. I usually had to run. The bus came at a relatively consistent time, give or take five minutes. But usually what would happen is my brother and I, we would drag our feet getting ready. We'd pull up to the breakfast table maybe with five minutes to spare. My mom's anxiously glancing out the kitchen window where she has a clear view way off in the distance. It's really far off. The bus is like a little yellow speck where she can see this. But it's on the next road over. Essentially gave us some forewarning. And every morning, my brother and I would live in fear of the moment. My mom would yell, bus over the hill. It meant we had about two minutes to finish whatever last-minute primping and eating and brushing or packing we were doing. We had to throw on our shoes, coats, whatever the temperature was, and book it down the driveway. Now, we weren't the only ones in the route who did this. There were others who ran. It was kind of the entertainment of the ride. But every so often, the bus would be late. The infamous line from my mom wouldn't come, and we'd actually get to finish our breakfast. We'd brush our teeth, we'd get our stuff together, and we'd enjoy a leisurely walk down the lane. Here's my point. Sometimes an unexpectedly long delay can be a mercy. Friends, this is true about the return of Christ. Romans 2.4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We must remember that every day our king is delayed in returning. He calls more of the elect to himself. Do you have family members who don't know the gospel? Praise God, they still have time to repent. God's mercy in the gospel is still extended. So let's not be like Jonah. Let's not grumble at the mercy of God. People who think we know better than God when it comes to his sovereign purposes in salvation. Instead, remember the words of Peter. 
With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. God does not look at time like we do. He created it. He stands outside of it. His timing is always perfect. So let us praise him then for his forbearance in bringing about the conclusion of these last days, even as we long to see that glorious end. Number two, to the individual Christian, getting prepared for Jesus isn't a one-off task. It's lifelong. Again, this is a truth that's often been cast aside, sadly, in the last century of North American Christianity. Make a decision for Jesus. Come up here. Say the sinner's prayer. Get saved. I heard that all the time. It's not as catchy as saying something like this. Persevere to the end. Crucify your sinful desires for the next 60 years. Let's remember we are being saved. Both of those things are just as important. They can't be separated. I had the honor of preaching the gospel at my grandmother's funeral last week. I preached it in a church where she had been a member for 57 years. Nothing about her life was overly remarkable. She suffered great loss. She experienced times of great joy. She sinned much. She was sinned against. She forgave and was forgiven. And now her soul is at rest at her Savior's side, awaiting the resurrection of the dead. What's my point? It's this. Christian Many have stumbled at the first hurdle. Many more have stumbled at the 11th hurdle or the 500th. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, it is the one who stands firm to the end who will be saved. New City, we might have a long path ahead. Decades of walking in an era characterized by troubles and persecution. We need to prepare for a long road of spiritual warfare. Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, the truth is many have grown weary. Many have lost heart. Prepare for that temptation. Pray for perseverance. Don't take your eyes off Christ. Be prepared for a long, tough run. Thirdly, and this this ties in with that point, it's corporate to the church. We need to think more about long-term gospel priorities. So much of how we think about success in today's church is measured in here and now results with little view to the broader church of Christ. The mantra of the day is pour everything into your brand. Promote this flashy new discipleship program. Amass behind this charismatic new teacher. Grow, 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 bring the kingdom here now through your church. There are so many things wrong with that kind of thinking. It would make sense if we knew Christ was coming back next week or maybe five years from now. But what has our parable taught us today? The church must be prepared for a very long delay. A delay that's already lasted 2,000 years. Could there be 2,000 more? Absolutely. This needs to play more into our thinking. Multi-site machines, they dominate the Western church landscape. The most efficient church wins. The problem is the long-term sustainability of that kind of thinking is, is not good. They tend to fizzle after a decade or two, leaving in their wake dozens and dozens of wandering souls, many of whom proved to have been seed sown in rocky soil. Here's a newsflash, New City. The goal of the church is not gospel efficiency. 
To steal a pandemic term, it's gospel efficacy. Does it take root? Aaron Menikoff, a pastor in Georgia, wrote an excellent article a few years ago. It's titled, Pastor, Pray for Slow Growth. Does that make you squirm? Basically, his thesis is that slow growth is more likely to be sustainable. Many pastors who've labored during times of revival, like in the Great Awakening in the mid-1700s, they later reflected on this. So much false teaching crept in during that time. Spurious converts mixing with genuine new believers. This has been a pattern throughout periods of great revival in church history. But here's the normal pattern. Members of New City, all of us are called to encourage and rebuke our unique, complex, sinful brothers and sisters in order to help them persevere in the faith. Done properly, that is often inefficient work. Pastoring unique, complex, sinful, eternal souls is equally inefficient, or at least it should be. The principle of Proverbs 13.11 applies here. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Again, this doesn't mean, please don't misunderstand me, that we stop praying for conversions. Far from it. We pray all the more. We evangelize all the more. But remember, our Lord may yet be long delayed. So don't focus on the numbers or live and die on efficiency. Live and die on the gospel. For who knows what kind of impact that one evangelized coworker or that one encouraged discipleship partner will have on the church seven generations from now. Spending time on them may be a more worthwhile investment than spreading yourself thin. Let me single out the parents here this morning. Parents, speaking to myself too, what is the single most common mode of evangelism the Lord has used to build his church over the last 2,000 years? It's us. It's regular parents. Training up our little broods in righteousness. Teaching them the gospel. Praying faithfully for it to take root. The reverberations are endless. I'm an example of this. At least three branches of my lineage, I cannot tell you when it was the first person believed the gospel. It goes back at least a couple hundred years, probably on some backwoods English farm. Someone somewhere believed the gospel and was saved, and then they raised their children faithfully. And hundreds of years later, Jesse and I, if the Lord sees fit to save Heidi and Betty, what a joy. What an important role the Lord has given us. But come back to thinking about the church as a whole with me. What do I mean by long-term corporate gospel priorities? Well, remember our second point on the importance of perseverance, of finishing the race. What is God's design for individual Christians to do that? It's the local church. As we'll see next week, how we act toward our fellow brothers and sisters in this life matters a great deal on the last day. Helping each other get to heaven is like an essential fruit of the Spirit. So let's not look down on our humble roles as church members. We have a most important duty to help each other withstand this tumultuous age. And from a corporate perspective, here's some long-term examples. Church revitalizations. Sending a group of people, even a pastor, from one church to another that is close to shutting its doors. Here in Toronto, what GFC did with Royal York Baptist a couple years ago, that was thinking long-term about the gospel. Done well, this is a great example of foregoing the perpetuation and expansion of your own congregation as though you've cornered the market for the sake of the sustainability of a faithful church presence across your region. No church 
has cornered the market on the gospel. We can be so tempted to think we're the only church that gets it right. That thinking is straight from the pit of hell. Here in Toronto in the near future, this might mean thinking practically about property. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the massive advantage it is to control your own church building. The church is not a building, of course. It's an assembly, though, an assembly that must gather regularly somewhere. Securing a relatively permanent toehold for the gospel in a crowded, expensive city, that could bless generations of believers. That might mean sacrificing certain financial flexibility right now for the sake of that goal. It might mean church mergers. Of course, my point is not to set up purchasing property as this altruistic goal of long-term gospel thinking. It may be the opposite in some circumstances. There may come a day when churches are deemed illegal in Canada and can't own property. What I'm saying is we need to stop acting like we are the last generation of believers. That is what the disciples thought. Let's lay the groundwork for some future gospel work. Let me conclude with this. I know I said earlier that any attempt to decisively interpret what the oil supposedly represents in this parable falls flat. It's not really the point. It's merely a device to serve Jesus' greater point about the delay. But here's at least one faithful parallel. The wisdom of the virgins who brought, who brought the extra oil is like the wisdom of the Christian who commits themselves to the ordinary means of grace. We don't need to reinvent the wheel to prepare for a lifetime of trouble. As Sam Amadi of Nine Marks writes, Pastor, don't do weird stuff. Scripture is clear about what to do. Number one, regular intake of the word through preaching and private study. Devote ourselves to it. Prayer, private and corporate. Do it without ceasing. Corporate worship, particularly gathering around the Lord's Supper with his people. Let's not neglect it. This is the oil that sustains a lifetime of prepared Christian living. Those who detach themselves from it will more likely, more than likely, be found unprepared. And brothers and sisters, in all likelihood, we are in a spiritual battle for the long haul. But let's remember this, Romans 13, 11. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And that's still true, even if our Lord tarries for another 30,000 years. Praise be to God that he has marked out an end to these days. In the interim... Let's appeal to the Spirit for grace to persevere, to persevere through hard times, for grace to care for what's been entrusted to us and wisdom to invest it wisely. And all the while, we can still pray, Maranatha, Lord, end your delay. But remember how our Savior would pray that. Not our will, but our Father's will be done. For he and he alone knows the day and the hour. And his timing will be immaculate. Amen.